If you guys would open your Bibles to um, the book of Colossians, and if you would all stand as we read our scripture and pray. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He is, also the he-, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Join me in prayer. Father, uh, we just thank you this afternoon, Lord, that you are with us, Lord, that we are constituted as your body. Lord, we love you. We just ask that you would um, come and be with us now, settle in this time. Lord, you know the prayers of my heart in preparing this. Lord, you know the needs of your people. Let uh, some person be touched. Lord, we're just asking this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I want you all to know uh, one of the first things that I have to say is that I love heresy. Now, I know you're going, okay, what does he mean by that? What I mean is that when you have a heresy in the church, it gives the church a, a, a chance to clarify what it means on a particular point. You can have monarchianism, that caused the church to clarify what it meant on the doctrine of God. You can have Arianism, that caused the church to clarify what it meant on the doctrine of Christ. You can have Pelagianism, that gave the church the, the chance to clarify what it meant on the doctrine of salvation. But here, in Colossians, we know that the heresy that was impacting this church was a precursor to Gnosticism. And we've covered this before, but we, we want to know that Paul's defense is, again, it's to exalt Christ, to make Christ over all. We saw the, the last time that I was blessed to stand before you, good people, that uh, in, in this passage, Christ is, uh, that Paul has made Christ uh, the Lord over salvation in verses 13 through 14, that Christ is sovereign in salvation. And we saw in verses 15 through 17 that Christ is uh, uh, sovereign in creation, excuse me, salvation, and he's sovereign in creation. And yet, Paul is not done painting for us this grand picture of who Christ Jesus is. What we will see today is that Christ is sovereign over the congregation and that he is sovereign over reconciliation. Would you join me as we go back to the text to take a look, our second look at Christ over all? The first facet that we are going to see this afternoon is that Jesus is the sovereign in the congregation. Let's read the text again. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Right after making these tremendous statements uh, that Jesus is sovereign over the two previous aspects, uh, both salvation and creation, Paul moves on to the next point. The text says he is also the head of the body. 
The word also here is an indication of what is coming, that what is coming is uh, intimately tied to what has just come. Not only is Christ the originator of the universe, but he is also the originator of the church. This is connected to the creation order uh, since salvation in Jesus brings his relation to the church together in all of its capacities. You cannot have one without the other. The text flows back from creation to redemption, and we as believers can only understand creation through redemption. It is Christ that embodies God's salvific plan from before creation. Remember the Bible says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And see, the here here in this text, it is indicating that this is Christ and Christ alone. Not angels, it's not eons or aeons, it's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad, it's not Krishna, it's not Ra, it's Yahshua Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ, who is the object who stands in front of and leads the church. Christ is the kephale, the head, and as the head, he gives direction and life to the body. You can cut off any member of your body. You can cut off an arm. You can cut off a leg. You can take out a kidney. You can cut out a lung. But if you cut off the head, the organism is going to die. 1 Corinthians says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. See, in a related passage in the sister book of Ephesians, um, the Bible says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together with, uh, by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. This causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, earlier Paul had said, he had expressed this view with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, in him. See, there is this body language, this body-type imagery all throughout the New Testament. If you want to take a look at one, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which was, I was laughing when Chris was reading this because I was thinking, I'm going to that same text <laughs> But it says in 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also Christ. And then after telling us that we have all been baptized into one body by this spirit, he goes on to talk about hands and feet and eyes and ears and all of this stuff, just relating this body language. And he, he, he ends his point in verse 27 where he says, now you are Christ's body and individually members thereof. Now here he is speaking uh, 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 specifically about the operation of spiritual gifts in the body, but Paul is using language here that brings this powerful metaphor to life. And this is what, what is this body? What is this thing also known as by analogy? This is simply the church. See, the new covenant church is composed of true believers in Christ Jesus for all time. This is a special entity which was created just for us. 
Paul was urging the Colossians to understand that they were the church and that this bond that they had should have warded off any attempts by the false teachers to infiltrate their ranks. See, theology, and this is, again, echoing what, 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 what our brother just said, theology is done in community. It's not done in isolation. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. This is why the elders and the deacons of this church, that's why they, they want to be involved in your life, okay? This is why people went and they visited our sister Angie. That's why they visited you. This is why people write letters to our brother who's been taken away from us. This is why you cook meals. This is why you send greetings. This is why you do all that you do. Because we, like the Colossians, are not only a small a, a body. We are the, capital T-H-E, the body, the universal body of Christ. Without Jesus, the church cannot think the truth. Without Jesus, the church cannot act uh, correctly. Without Jesus, it cannot decide what direction it is going. See, there are two things that are combined here. There is the idea of privilege. It is the privilege of the church to be the instrument through which Christ works. And there is the idea of warning. If a, if a man neglects or abuses his body, he can make it unfit to be the servant of the great purposes of his mind. So by undisciplined living, undisciplined, careless living, the church can be unfit herself to be the instrument of Christ. And as I read that, I was thinking to myself, unfit. Vodibachum says, if you can't say amen, just say ouch. I said ouch. Adding an additional aspect of Christ's character, the text says that he is also the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Jesus here is called the Arche. This word Arche is found in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And scripture makes reference to Jesus being the beginning, the end, the first and the last, many, many times. Revelation 22:13 says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In Revelation 3, 4, the Bible says, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The language is carried over straight from the Old Testament that speaks of Yahweh as the one and only true God and relates it to Christ. Isaiah 44 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. This title for God is carried over to include Christ Jesus, y'all. Christ is the Old Testament Yahweh. But since Christ is the beginning, what does that mean? Well, luckily the text tells us. The text tells us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. See, both in time and in rank, Christ's resurrection is the significant issue in this text. Both life and death are his to command because he is the one who holds all authority in his hands. Christ triumphed over death by raising himself from the grave, and he is also the Lord over death. Uh, and therefore, he guarantees that those who place their active trust, their faith in him, shall rise from their graves to everlasting life with him. This is the teaching of the book of Acts. Uh, a few weeks ago, two brothers were in the back, and they were talking about the book of Acts and the preaching that was going on in the book of Acts. And I was just thinking that I was, that's what they're talking about. The message of the book of Acts is the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection from the dead. 
This, this is the teaching of the book of Acts. The apostles declared that this, this uh, the, declared the resurrection from the clutches of death to be the vindication of Jesus' claim to be the son of the living God. What do the words, uh, what the words firstborn, and that's prototokos again, and Christ being the beginning, that's RK, what they mean here are terms that they're titles of Christ. They're titles of the majesty of our Savior. They are descriptions of him, but they are terms related in a reason and result relationship. Christ is the beginning because he is the firstborn from the dead. Why has God chosen to do, the, do this this way? Why has he chosen to humiliate himself? Why has he allowed himself to be killed by his own creation? Is he not sovereign? Does, he, does his will not get accomplished in whatever he pleases it to do? Could God not have simply twitched his finger and caused all of salvation and redemption, uh, even damnation and reprobation, to have been accomplished? God chose this, for, this way for one simple reason, and it's in the text. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's what scripture says. That was God's purpose. Christ here is said to be the preeminent one in all things, including the church, including salvation, including creation. I like the way the NIV puts it again. It says, so that in all things he might have the supremacy. Christ has become, and notice that this verb here is an aorist tense verb, denoting that this action took place, uh, it's a whole action here. Christ, Christ has become the supreme, the preeminent one, and it is a done deal. Now, excuse me, I'm reminded of, of a little story here, uh, and I got to take a pause to tell this story. There was a movie that I saw when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. It was called The Last Dragon, and it's it, it was a terrible movie. <laughs> He's laughing, okay? The Last Dragon. And in the movie, there's an a, a evil character named Shonuff. And Shonuff wants to be the greatest fighter in the world. And he's walking through, and he's in this, he goes into this movie theater, and they announce him, you know, Shonuff is here, and everybody is getting out of his way. And then they hear this little kid say, I know who can beat you. And Shonuff says, who can beat me? He picks this kid up, and the kid points, and he says, Bruce Leroy can beat you. Now understand, we got one character named Shonuff, and another character named Bruce Leroy. Bruce Leroy can beat you. So he puts the kid down, and he's walking over to the kid in this all melodramatic scene. And the point is, one of his henchmen turns to the camera and says, that's the only man who stands between show and total supremacy. Look, no one, no one stands between Christ and total supremacy. He is the supreme one. He didn't have to fight for it. He didn't have to argue for it. He had to do nothing for it. It is who he, who he is. Because he is the first from, firstborn from the dead, Jesus is the preeminent one, period, end of sentence. Peter O'Brien says, the words, be the first, resume the double reference to firstborn, as well as the phrase, he is before all things while the expression in all is linked with the frequently mentioned all things. He's right. Jesus has become the highest ranking one by order of the resurrection. But he is the highest ranking one by order of his position as the sovereign. 
And this is the point in which, which Douglas Moo makes in his commentary, and it agrees with it. He says, Christ's universal lordship is not just a theoretical affirmation about the way the world is. It holds wide-ranging implications for the way Christians are to find spiritual fulfillment. Understanding who Christ is is the way to find spiritual fulfillment. Yes, Christ is the supreme one over all things, and that's you, and that's me. That's devils and demons. That's the tiniest molecule or the largest galaxy. It doesn't matter. It's all under his control. Christ has always been supreme in his essence, but he became supreme by the resurrection from the dead. The Bible records John the Baptist in the first chapter of the Gospel of John as saying, this is he whom I said, he comes before me because he has a higher rank than me, than I, for he existed before me. Then explaining what John meant, the text goes on to say, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Do you hold Christ as supreme? The false teachers in Colossae, in all of their vain and speculative wisdom, could not have come up with a plan like this. This is absolutely amazing. Only God, only God himself could have had such a plan. And what does it mean for you and what does it mean for me? For me? Let Jesus reign as supreme in all things. Bow to his majesty that he carries in his person. Give him the glory of having a first place in your life. Give him the glory of having first place in your marriage. Give him the glory of having first place on your job. Give him the glory of having first place with your kids. Give him the glory as you're riding down the highway. Give him first place. In all things, Christ has first place. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the preeminent one. The next facet that confronts us in the text, is found in the next verse. Paul says that Jesus is the fullness of what it means to be God. The text says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, in this text, there are some grammatical issues, but I think we can work through them quickly and see what Paul's point is here. The Greek, in the Greek, the text literally, literally reads, so that in him was pleased all the fullness to dwell. The in him section of this text is, is placed at the front for emphasis. It's talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ alone, nobody else. And this is preceded by a, a simple conjunction, but it tells us the reason for Christ having the preeminent place in the material and immaterial worlds. Why does he have it? It is because all the fullness dwells in him. What was it like to squeeze all of that godness into a human body? Remember John 1, we're told that Jesus is the pre-existing word and that the word became flesh? The incarnation has to be one of the most profound mysteries in all of creation. The finite God, the, the, the infinite God becoming finite. 
Later in the same epistle, Paul will tell us, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. And this is echoing the very same information that we have before us now. So the question is this, what is this fullness that Paul is talking about? A fullness of what? The pleroma that Paul speaks about here has the meaning of God's complete and total essence, or all that makes God, God. Remember back in verse 15, Paul had already said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 16, it said that he is the creator of all things. So is it, it is not hard to understand that everything that is God is in, is in Jesus. As Hebrews says, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and you, O Lord, this is an Old Testament passage being quoted in the New Testament about Yahweh being given to Christ. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like garments, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your, your years will not come to an end. Paul is making it clear by weaving in and out of this Jesus cloth that he is stitching on. All the fullness of God dwelt in the man Christ Jesus. That which is characteristic of God is also characteristic of God's Son. This, this fullness is a fullness of God's very being. It was all in the man, Christ Jesus, who walked, who talked, who ate, who slept, and who eventually died for you and for me. So I hope that you can see Jesus is the sovereign over the congregation, the church. But the second facet that we're going to look at is that Jesus is the sovereign over reconciliation. In verse 20, the Bible says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The word and here is, is very important to us and is very important to our understanding. It is a connecting clause. It is connecting the previous clause with this clause that we have, that we have just covered. God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in Christ Jesus and to have him do something else. What is that? The text goes on to tell us it is through him, that is Christ Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. See, God was pleased, God was satisfied to have all the fullness of Christ be a permanent feature of Christ's character. He did not become the Son of God, but always was and is the Son of God. But this action, this reconciliation took place in time. This is what grammarians call a punctiliar action. Redemption in some sense was not accomplished in the heavenly realm, but right here on earth in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. But what does it mean to reconcile all things? Reconcile in the Greek, and I always mess this word up, is apokataliso, and that means to reconcile completely. 
to bring to a state free of conflicts. It is through Jesus that you and I are no longer at war with God. The Greek word for reconciliation, the Greek words for reconciliation are tremendously enlightening here. There is katalasso, the verb, katalaj, the noun. These words come from kata, which means down, and alasso, which means to change or exchange. Thus, katalasso means to change from enmity or disharmony to fellowship and harmony, or to reconcile. Then there is apakataliso, and that's the term that we find here in Colossians. This is a triple compound word because it adds the preposition apo, from. It does not occur in earlier Greek, and it seems to be used by Paul to express the idea of completeness, the completeness of reconciliation. We can properly translate it to reconcile completely. Each of these Greek words primarily primarily refers to a one-way kind of reconciliation, one uh, uh, accomplished by one person or one party. This is important. This is important to understand because the Greeks had a word, dialiso, which referred to a two-way or mutual kind of uh, understanding. Dialiso denotes a mutual concession after mutual hostility. That idea is absent from kataleso. The same word is used in Ephesians 2.16. The text says, For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in him he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, not having, by having put to death the enmity. Now, that reconciliation is on a human level. Pay attention to this text. Pastor Emilio has covered it. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Now all, th- all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed us to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. J.B. Lightfoot makes this comment, and he made it in a commentary, an old commentary, and I think it is scathing about the, the false teachers that were in Colossae. He said this, The false teachers aimed at effecting a partial reconciliation between God and man through the interposition of angelic mediators. The apostle speaks of an absolute and complete reconciliation of a universal nature to God, affected through the mediation of the incarnate word. What he said is, Jesus paid it all. It was Christ and Christ alone who resolved this conflict, that uh, this, this reconciliation, this sin issue that we still suffer from, that still affects us, even though we are bought, we are redeemed, we are saved. Christ did this, guys, with all things. And guess what? All still means all. Everything that has been created has been reconciled through the cross work of Jesus to God. The false teachers were trying to say that angels or emanations could in some way bring men closer to God, but that's not so. 
Christ Jesus is the sole means of reconciliation. His death on the cross, the sole method that God has chose to use. The second issue that Paul brings to our attention is that there, that there is an earthly, uh, earthly and a heavenly component of this reconciliation. Paul, using, using a participle here, having made peace, as a way to signify the means by which this reconciliation has taken place. By making peace with God, that is, by bringing detente to this cosmic war that was raging, God has now brought us peace. Ephesians said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the middle wall, the barrier, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so that he himself, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. We have peace with God this afternoon, right here, right now, no matter what happens, no matter what the drive is going home, no matter what happens tomorrow on your job, no matter what somebody, bill, calls, bill collector calls you up, we have peace with God. And how was this accomplished? What was the means? What was, how was this done? It was through the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, we have a historical faith. This is the most well-attested fact of nearly all of history, that Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, he died on a cross in Jerusalem. But we also have a bloody faith. The cross was no picnic. It was an excruciating death. And we cannot forget to add that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and that's absolutely true. But the, this shedding of blood here is symbolic, and it means uh, the totality of his death. It's the way in which Christ died. Let me put it this way. If Christ had bled and not died, we would still be in our sins. We have to remember that Christ's death was both sacrificial and substitutionary. The third facet that Paul brings out here is a repetition of the point that he made earlier with one slight modification. The text reads, through him I say whether things on earth are things in heaven. That is, through him or by him, if that's a little bit clearer, remember reconciliation was accomplished by Christ, whether the things reconciled on earth or the things were reconciled in heaven. The part that Paul left out of this is the rulers and the powers and the principalities that dominate in verse 16. Christ did not die to reconcile demonic forces or even unregenerate men and women uh, back to God. He died for his people, and he died for them alone. See, God is not reconciled. God is propitiated. It is uh, mankind through faith in Christ that is reconciled to God. One commentator said, Our Lord did not come in order that God might love men, 
but because God loved men. The, big, the biggest weakness, the, the problem with my theology before I came to this reformed position was understanding the answer to this question. Who did Christ die for? Jesus did not die for persons who are in or who will end up in hell. I am so glad that Jesus has reconciled you and Jesus has reconciled me. Jesus is sovereign over reconciliation. As I end this text, we have seen the last two sermons that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. It is Christ over all. Jesus is the supreme one. His rule and majesty is unmatched by anything or anybody. Get that straight. He is sovereign over salvation and creation. And what we learn uh, this Lord's Day is that he is sovereign over the congregation and reconciliation. Paul placed this description of Christ in such a prominent place in this letter to confront head-on the false teaching that was affecting this fledgling flock. And it was clouding the, some issues in their mind. Our worldview cannot divide our faith from our lives. Our worldview cannot divide the church from culture. Our worldview cannot divide theology from practice, from prayer from people, worship from everyday work. This is what the enemy desires, quote, a robust and vibrant faith that just sits in the pews and never reaches outside of the church walls. How many churches fall into that today? Let us learn from the near fatal mistakes of the Colossians and celebrate Christ over all, the sovereign one, the supreme Lord of all creation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these people. Lord, I just ask that you would bless them through what was said today. Lord, we're just asking that um, they would be honored by what was said, uh, that you would be honored by what was said, and that they would be edified. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. We ask for this in Christ Jesus' precious and holy name. And all God's people said, amen.